I, I think that for the most part, what I've tried to do during my life and uh, latterly is that when a young person's got an idea uh, about something, I'm not about to say, oh, we tried that 10 years ago and it didn't work. G'day and welcome to the Humans of Agriculture podcast in collaboration with the Royal Agricultural Society of Victoria. I'm your host, Ollie Laleve, and over the next 11 days, we've got something pretty exciting in store. The Royal Agricultural Society of Victoria, or RASV, has proudly presented the Royal Melbourne shows since 1855. It's Victoria's largest and most iconic annual community event, attracting more than 450,000 visitors and contributes more than $244 million to Victoria's economy each year. Due to the impact of COVID-19, the Royal Melbourne show was cancelled this year for only the third time in its 165-year history. After what has been an incredibly testing year for many people, we are very excited to be celebrating the Royal Melbourne show online this year. Over the next 10 days, you'll be hearing stories from a range of people who are all actively involved in the show, and some of them for nearly 50 years. Today I'm chatting with Jason Ronald. Jason has an incredibly impressive CV, and he wears many hats. He's a farmer from Tallarook in central Victoria, president of the Seymour Agricultural and Pastoral Society, director for the Royal Agricultural Society of Victoria, and most notably, he received a Medal of the Order of Australia for his contribution and services to the community, including social welfare, cultural, political, and agricultural organisations. Pretty impressive. So who better to kickstart the celebration of the show than Jason? Today, we're going to chat with Jason a little bit about his story and his involvement in agriculture from a young age. His grandmother, Violet, had an incredible influence on not only himself, but the community more broadly. And we're going to find out how this community-mindedness has come about and set up Jason for his roles over his career. His father, he was very involved with the local Pakenham show, as well as the Royal Melbourne show. And so we'll tap into a bit more about that as well. We touch on the RASV's various awards and support programs that see people undertake international experience and learning and development opportunities all over the world. Jason and I chat about the master plan and what's next for the show. And towards the end, I love how Jason starts to talk about the role and influence of young people, not only within agriculture, but more broadly within the organisations he's been a part of. Enjoy the chat. G'day, Jason. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Ollie. Great to be with you. Now, normally we would be doing it face to face and like other years, we'd see each other face to face at the agribusiness luncheon, and unfortunately, that can't happen. But I just wanted to start off by checking in. How are you going, and how have you found this year? Well, it's been extraordinary, and uh, as much as you say we're not face to face, of course, you and I are face to face as uh, we can see each other at this time while we're recording this. But uh, it's been a weird year because uh, normally I'd go back and forth to Melbourne. I'm at Tallarook and I'd go back and forth to Melbourne up to probably four times a week for meetings and other things. And uh, since March, and it's now uh, September, I've been to Melbourne twice. Uh, So it's been a great saving in regard to fuel and tolls, uh, but uh, it's been a very different environment in that sense. But in the other sense, as far as the property goes and the stock, 
Well, they've got no idea that COVID-19 is about. I mean, the cattle, the horses, um, it's nothing to them. Uh, even the koalas and kangaroos have got no idea. And uh, so on the farm, life has really just continued the same. And uh, I've just sold uh, 40 heifers and steers. Um, and in the same way as I actually easier than any other way I've done because I sold them right next to a neighbour. But uh, uh, <laughs> but it, life has just continued. You've just had less contact with people, um, a lot of contact at the supermarket uh, with keeping 1.5 metre distance, of course. <laughs> uh, but that's been the spot to catch up. And then uh, because I'm involved with the uh, Tallarook Farmers Market, uh, we've been able to have that, not every month, but it certainly was the beginning of this month. And it's amazing, people you haven't seen for weeks, if not months, um, you catch up with at the farmer's market because uh, they're able to happen and you can have a bit of a chat and uh, and see what's been going on. But it's a very, a very strange year and who would have ever guessed, you know, uh, um, back in even well, January maybe, that we'd be going through something like this. Uh, extraordinary experience and one that you wouldn't really want to repeat again ever in your life. The catching up with friends at the farmer's market's quite cool though, isn't it? Like it's, it's something that probably a lot of people have, have taken for granted in the past, but it's actually bonding around food and, and agriculture and a bit like the old days. Yeah, well, it's probably uh, provided an opportunity for people to do that. And so where they might not normally have uh, gone to the farmer's market, they probably make a bit more of an effort thinking, well, I'm not only going to buy a few products, which they all know will be good, uh, and homegrown for the most part or made or whatever. Uh, and uh, But also an opportunity to catch up with their neighbours and others who they haven't seen. And uh, so it has worked out well in that respect. And uh, fortunately, the last market last Sunday was perfect weather and a good roll up of people. But of course, no one from Melbourne could come to it because in the stage four lockdown, they can't travel further than five kilometres. So, uh, but it was still a great success and uh, a lot of the... Uh, uh, the people who have their uh, displays and, uh, and what have you there were successful in selling out everything. So uh, they thought it was quite successful. Yeah, wow. It's, um, it's unreal. There's a lot of kind of online initiatives happening as well, but it's hard to get past that face-to-face. -face. Well, and, yeah, absolutely. And so for you, though, Tallarook wasn't always home. You grew up over the other side of Melbourne in an area called Pakenham, and you... Are you still very involved back back in the Pakenham region? What was growing up, or how? Yeah, how's the area changed? Kind of. Have you ever, have you ever been to Pakenham? Yeah. Well, I'm glad you asked actually, because I 2016 was exporting asparagus out of Kuirup. Um so very familiar with the Pakenham area. <laughs> you are extraordinary. Well, a uh, very different area that you would have found yourself in to what I found growing up. Um, it's interesting that here at Tallarook, uh, a small sort of country town, very old world country, you know, just, uh, you know, four commercial establishments and a couple of churches, um, even more country than Pakenham ever was. But at least back in uh, the days when I was born, I mean, it was country. It was a long way out uh, from Melbourne and uh, there weren't all the suburban houses there are now pushed up against each other. Uh, Pakenham was a, a, a delightful place. We had a, a property there. My father had been born there. 
property called Kuman Gunong, and uh, my brother now lives there. Uh, but instead of uh, grazing sheep and cattle, uh, there are houses all around it. So uh, it got uh, subdivided. But growing up, uh, it was a great, uh, a great place, uh, a great uh, lot of people, friends and so on there of my family uh, and my relatives uh, nearby. Uh, and we enjoyed our, uh, ourselves there. And my father was... Uh, uh, breeding uh, commercial cattle and uh, Romney Marsh sheep and worked hard every day of his life. And that's no exaggeration. I think about it now while I'm going around the paddock in an air-conditioned tractor and uh, listening to CDs or radio or whatever and think of him on his, you know, open tractor uh, at all the stages of the year uh, and how lucky are we. But uh, he worked hard every day of his life. Um, but he was you know, put in a lot to local organisations um, and most of them seemed to happen uh, from about 1949 when he got married. Uh, and, uh, you know, there's a lot of a lot of great people there and a lot of great organisations in the Pakenham area and there still are today. Yeah, and so I had a question for you which I'm really interested in because you're such a community-orientated person and many people who have listened to my podcast probably aren't familiar with you, Jason, which for me, I reckon is really exciting because it's a new voice and a new face, but you received an order of Australia medal in 2008 um, for your services to the community and you're a patron of the arts. You were involved in local politics for a little bit, but it has it come from your father that giving back to the community? Interesting. I think it's probably a combination of things. My mother's mother, uh, Violet Lambert, was a long-term counsellor of the Shire of Ferntree Gully. Uh, and that shire doesn't exist anymore, but she was on the council from the 1930s to the late 1950s. And so she contributed significantly. And one thing, as an aside to that, uh, or two things actually, one thing was that uh, I didn't realise until of recent times that when she got elected to the council in the 1930s, she wasn't only the only female councillor, she was the only female employed by the Shire. There weren't any female secretaries around. There weren't, you know, so she was the only woman anywhere. All the rest were male. So quite an extraordinary achievement. And uh, she was one of the first councillors elected in uh, to a council in Victoria. But she subsequently went on to start the Ferntree Gully and District Agricultural and Horticultural Society. So she started a show society and uh, was the first president and had the uh, the local governor and others come along and, and uh, uh, open it uh, at different years. And that's what um, my father, uh, who had a reputation at being uh, very good caller of shows, uh, grand parades and things like that, uh, got recognised by her and she invited him to go to the Ferntree Gully show and help them and show them, you know, how they could do things better and so on. And uh, so one thing led to another and uh, he proposed uh, to my mother, her daughter, uh, and uh, they got married um, and uh, on they went from there. Wow, that's an incredible story. <laughs> well, well, the thing with, and then you were saying, you know, did I get it from my father? Well, and then, of course, uh, 
the other thing my grandmother did was she started a retirement village in Fern Tree Gully in 1956. And uh, that at that stage was one of the few retirement villages around and it was a not-for-profit uh, organisation, still going now. And when she died in 1975, they wanted another member of the family to go on it and so I did. And uh, I was on it for the next 39 years, uh, ending up as president for 12 years. And it's a great organisation and another thing that she did for the community. So, yeah, certainly that rubbed off onto me and I can remember going there when I was just a young boy uh, and then continued on to be involved and proud to, uh, you know, support her legacy. And then my father um, got elected to the uh, Berwickshire Council and was on it for 23 years, but also had started before that as a member of the Pactum Agricultural and Horticultural Society and was a president for 11 years and then was elected to the Pakenham Racing Club as well. And those things he stayed involved with for the rest of his life, the Racing Club and the Ag Society, uh, and uh, gave up the council in the early 70s. So that was certainly an example set to both my brother and I. And uh, my brother was involved in the local council and was also coming up for 50 years involved with the Pakenham Ag Society. And uh, so we both contributed. So it obviously must have been an influence, but I think about that every now and again, and I think, well, how is it we were so influenced to follow, if you like, in the footsteps of uh, grandmother and father in that respect, whereas others don't? And uh, so there must have been something sort of special there, presumably, that encouraged us. Yeah, it's incredible. And so for you, Hi, I'm Pia, horticulture and sugar analyst at Rabobank, and I'm here to share our latest insights on Australia's vegetable market. Did you know in 2023, Australia produced over $5.8 billion worth of vegetables, though only 4.3% of this was exported. Like many other countries, the Australian vegetable industry relies mostly on its domestic market. In fact, only 7% of global vegetables produced are traded between countries. But we are starting to see that trend change. Global trade is growing at a faster rate than production, and countries with low cost production are seeing the highest growth rates. You can learn more about trends in the vegetable market on our latest Rabo Research Australia podcast, Mapping World Vegetable Trade, or reach out to me via the Rabobank Australia social media channels to learn more. Growing up, what, what significance did that local show have to you? Why, why would you guys go each year? Well, it was more than just the the local show. Uh, Pakenham, of course, you know, as I said, uh, he'd already been the president uh, from the late 30s to the to 40s, so well before I came along. And um, uh, we'd not only go to that show, but because my mother was breeding Shetland ponies, uh, subsequently uh, Highland ponies and Australian ponies, we were always on horses. Dad always rode horses around uh, the, the paddocks uh, you know, long before any motorbike uh, ever got anywhere there. And the main reason he was riding the horses, not only to do the work with the stock, but also he happened to be the master of the Melbourne Hunt Club for 11 years. And so it was a good way of exercising the hunters. Uh, and so he combined both. But again, that's another involvement which he took on after he gave up football, uh, having been in the premiership side of Pakenham uh, back in the late 40s. I think uh, his new wife must have read him the riot act in regard to uh, continuing his football involvement. Um, so uh, it was interesting. And we had uh, hunts at 
home uh, over the property with uh, the afternoon tea and so on um, taking place there following the hunting. So uh, it is interesting that the shows, Pakenham was just a, a sort of compulsory show, if you like, because of Dad's involvement that we'd go to each year and Mum was always supportive of that. And then uh, we'd go to other shows in the district as well, competing on ponies, particularly at a young age, and uh, and getting involved with them. So uh, it was sort of in the blood right from the start. And then so the Melbourne show or the Royal Melbourne show, does it, ha- like, it has this aura about it. Obviously, we can talk about over the years how it's grown in terms of crowds, but for for people coming from the farming background and the the various local shows, what was so prestigious about the Royal Melbourne show to them? Well, again, it's uh, it's interesting because I suppose from my perspective, again, my father was involved from the with the Royal Melbourne show and the Royal Agricultural Society from the year he married and even early before that he was stewarding but he was on the council from 1949 until he died in 1989 so 40 years involvement and uh, he was he got his experience before that as the Pakenham show the Dandenong show the Berwick show uh, where he played a role and when it came the time uh, you know for other people, well, there, was, there was always a need, I suppose, for people to assist. I mean, these shows are made up of organisers, exhibitors and competitors and spectators, and there's always a need for more organisers. Um, there never seemed to be a shortage of competitors and exhibitors for the most part, or spectators, but you need organisers and you need people to get involved. So the, the thing would be in the past that, uh, the councillors, who at that time probably were about 60 or more around the state, would just be on the lookout in various areas, of whether it's cattle, horses, sheep, uh, arts and crafts, or the shed, as it's called, uh, to see who who was playing a role with their local ag society that might be interested in being involved in the Royal Melbourne show, because each of the ag societies around the state uh, are small, by comparison to the state show, which is the Royal Melbourne show. And, you know, I've had between, you know, 500 and 900,000 people attend that show over the years. And it's had a lot of prestige and it was the top show in the state and at times the top show in the country. And so people wanted to be involved with organising. They want to be involved in competing and uh, exhibiting there. And so, they'd come to the attention of councillors and councillors would recommend them to be a steward in a certain section. And uh, then they get the opportunity to do that. There'd be senior stewards and junior stewards and you'd learn the ropes and then you'd go on from there and uh, see where that led. But I don't think anybody who was invited to be a steward ever declined. They always saw it as an honour to be involved at the Royal Melbourne Show and uh, that probably is the same today. Yeah, I was going to say, being like headhunted as such, <laughs> obviously for for what you can do at the local level, it would be an incredible honour to be tapped on the back like that. And and it's something that uh, you know we want to continue now and uh, get a message across to people that you know, as I said earlier, you know, I break it down to uh, the organisers, the competitors, and exhibitors, and the spectators. Now, for the most part, in any local country area, just about everyone would fit into one of those categories. 
and the organisers are always needed and we're always looking, I think, for more volunteers, because that's what the organisers are, to get involved. And I think for the most part today, any ag society would be delighted to have a phone call from somebody in their community saying, is there something I can help you with? How can I assist the show? Uh, I have an interest in X, Y and Z and uh, I'd be happy to you know, be involved. And then their degree of involvement can then be either helping set up the show and take it down, helping on the day and stewarding in a particular section, or getting on to the committee or council and uh, being involved in meetings the year round with the organising and uh, encouraging uh, you know, changes and uh, the involvement of more people. So uh, I think that's vital and that still continues. And as much as it's been said that you know, some of the ag societies have gone by the wayside, I think at the same time, a lot of them are doing very well. And once they get the people involved, and it doesn't matter what age they are, uh, younger ones are always popular and welcomed, but you need older ones as well. Uh, and you need a range of people. And if you get that range, then uh, you have a good uh, ag society. As is the one I'm involved with now, which is the Seymour Ag Society, where I'm the president and have been for the last uh, five years. Uh, not doing much this year, but uh, <laughs> we certainly have been over the previous years. And uh, a great bunch of people at Seymour and Surrounds who get involved, and uh, a number of them have been involved a long time, some 50 or 40 years. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I was actually so speaking with Amy Bolton, who's part of this series as well. And she was saying that it's nearly the day the show finishes, people pack down as this is part of the beef um, side of things, but they pack down and then within a month, they've just got such a camaraderie with each other that they're back on the phone and they're thinking, well, how, how good was this year, but what can we do better next year? And it's this constant kind of, th yeah, constant thinking about, well, yes, we're, we've done well, but not sitting on the laurels and, and doing more, giving more. It's uh, incredible. And that's very true. And uh, two points about that. One is that up here, uh, we don't have the opportunity of sitting on our laurels for too long because the Saturday after the Melbourne show is the Seymour show. Oh, so God. the Seymour show is the first weekend in October. So uh, I have to uh, return on sort of, you know, the Wednesday or Thursday and uh, and set up for the Seymour show, which is on that weekend. So it's the first show after the Melbourne show. And I think next year with the change of dates, we might find that the C the Melbourne show runs into the Seymour show, uh, <laughs> which uh, we don't think will be a major problem, but it's still uh, something that, you, you know, will be different and something we'll have to cope with. And you're going to be a very, very busy man for that, those couple of weeks. Well, exactly. Um, we'll see uh, you know, what happens in regard to uh, changes in office bearers and so on. But uh, uh, yeah, it, uh, but it's all interesting. But uh, yeah, the, the thing with uh, committees is that, again, uh, talking about people helping uh, as stewards and so on on the day and uh, the lead up to, but also with committees, every area of the Royal Melbourne Show has a committee that uh, looks after its interests, looks to the future as you're talking about, uh, reviews the last show or the last event that's taken place with a view to making changes that will improve it 
uh, for all involved, uh, particularly the exhibitors or competitors. And uh, those committees are also available for people who have a great interest. And if you have a great interest in a particular area of the Royal Melbourne Show or one of the events that we hold during the year, and you want to be involved, then you should contact uh, the society and offer your services and uh, you'll be interviewed and, uh, you know, you're often more than likely taken up. Yeah, and just on that as well, it's in incredibly interesting. So for, for Amy, like, you've obviously got these various facilities for young people as part of the Royal Ag Society of Victoria. And so Amy actually went over to America the other year. And what I found so fascinating about her, and it, it, it's the mentality of what I'm finding with the, the other people I'm talking with as part of this series as well, is it's all about giving. So she went over to look at what, what are they doing in America that's working around building up opportunities for young people in, in and around agriculture, but particularly for her in beef and her mindset behind that was actually, well, what can we then bring back to the Royal Melbourne show and Royal Ag Society of Victoria, which is just incredible, isn't it? It's this giving it's, it's not taking, it's all about, yeah, giving back and growing that community. Absolutely. And uh, I mean, we have, uh, some great encouragement for young people. We've just announced a scholarship not so long ago uh, for a girl down the Western District whose family's been very involved in the Royal Ag Society and she'll have an advantage of receiving money to assist with studies. We do encourage young people in many different ways and the emerging leaders uh, uh, conference we've had, the Rural Ambassadors is one of the best things. Uh, which exists uh, in Victoria particularly, but around the country as well, um, where young people under 30, I think it is, uh, are encouraged to, to uh, put their names forward uh, and to seek uh, money to assist with their studies, um, which have to be something to do with agriculture, logically. And mm. that's proved very good, but we've got to probably be better at making the most of those people uh, and get, keeping them involved once we get them into the Rural Ambassador Program and uh, keep them involved with us for the future. Uh, so it's something they need to work at. But in regard to overseas, I mean, there's so much we can learn from uh, overseas and how they do things. Um, you know, the Royal Agricultural Societies of the Commonwealth meets every couple of years uh, and that involves agricultural societies from all Commonwealth countries and that can be particularly interesting. Um, I remember uh, being at one in Brisbane a few years ago and the one that sticks in my mind always is uh, Calgary which uh, I subsequently did visit, the Calgary Stampede which is a brilliant uh, event uh, in Canada and uh, they had a, a flood that went right through their grounds, I'd say, you know, a month, might have been less, before it was due to take place. Well, anybody else would just say, well, that's it for the year, we're not doing it. They didn't accept it. They completely improved everything and had their stampede on the day it was supposed to be. An incredible performance. And I think that was about 2013 or something or other, but that's a guess. They do call 
uh, Calgary. So I was fortunate to go in 2015, but they do call it the greatest show on earth, don't they? I think uh, that's used a bit around the place, but uh, it is certainly used for that. And if you've been in 15, you know how good it is. And uh, oh. it is just spectacular. And they have a million people through there in 10 days. You know, absolutely mm -hmm. phenomenal. And the interesting thing with that to me is that the Calgary Stampede, I think anybody with any agricultural background or whatever, if you mention the Calgary Stampede, they've heard of it. And probably just about everybody else has as well. And yet it's not a capital city. It's a town there. It's not a huge population. And yet they pull off this event, you know, every year. And it is just stunning and spectacular and so well organised. And the thing there, uh, referring again to the volunteers that I've been mentioning earlier, they have an incredible volunteer uh, base that supports the work that they do and assists in the running of that event so that it is the success that it is. Lots of other shows around the world. In the UK, you know, plenty of shows there without sort of the rides and things that we tend to have. <laughs> but uh, they, they do it differently, but they do it very smartly and very uh, professionally and, uh, you know, well worth a visit. Yeah, and there's, I think a couple of things I want to follow up with you on that. One around the ride, but I'll just park that for the minute. But you mentioned that, yeah, the million people that go through the Calgary Stampede and back in 1972, Melbourne got up over 900,000 people, which was about 25% of the population at that time actually attending the Royal Melbourne shows. So how has that changed through the years? And, and what is the significance of bringing that, the country to the city for these couple of weeks each September? Well, I think uh, that one of the things was back then in 1972, it was a, a different world. Uh, we lived in. You hadn't been thought of at that stage. Uh, no, not even. <laughs> and uh, I was just leaving school. And um, there wasn't as much entertainment. Uh, there certainly wasn't the competition from the football uh, that there is today. But I think there are a lot more things that people can do with their time these days, a lot more ways they can spend their money than there were back then. And I think probably that back then the Royal Melbourne Show was one of the major events on the calendar uh, with the Melbourne Cup, the grand final. You know, we hadn't heard of the Grand Prix at that stage. Uh, you know, there were a few events on the fewer events on the calendar, but the Royal Melbourne Show was one of the major events. Now, I think we've slipped a bit since then. Uh, we are still the largest community event uh, that uh, is held in the state, but uh, I think we've got to appeal to more people, possibly possibly more of the ethnic groups that uh, make up our population now uh, than we used to. I think they're coming, but it's, it needs some more work. So things have changed in that respect. Also, the country people... I think used to come more to the show back in those days. Uh, and that was assisted by the fact that if you were showing stock, uh, cattle, sheep, uh, horses, you'd be spending the whole time of that fortnight as it was at the showgrounds. Nowadays, due to people's busy lives and expense and everything else, there's less of that. 
because uh, you come in for your competitions over a day or two and then you go out. Uh, you don't stay there for the whole time. And the camaraderie and so on and the family-like feel that used to be about doesn't exist to the same extent anymore. It's more sort of in and out, hope you get a championship ribbon and uh, or a blue one, and uh, off you go. So it's changed a lot and the facilities are different. Uh, I think that none of us realised how much uh, or how important a main arena is until you don't have one. Talk, I think, shortly you said about the master plan and uh, we'll bring that in more then, but uh, that was part of the redevelopment done uh, you know, 10 or 15 years ago. So uh, I, I think the, uh, the country people still very supportive, but maybe not seeing it as a must. And that's where we've got to work on as well, getting the country people to you know, be at the show. And uh, to do that, we need to improve facilities and uh, we need to encourage them. Um, which is hopefully something we can do uh, in the years ahead. Yeah, definitely. And I think now looking at just even when it comes to health trends and everything else, people are more conscious about their well-being and how food plays a role in that. And I think when you also look at the millennials, which I am, and, and the Gen Zs coming through there, the, the talk around sustainability comes front and centre in these conversations and then so the natural fibres start to play an incredibly important role in this. And so actually, is there, is there conversations to bring the show back to well, modernising how we talk about it, but bringing it back to that grassroots and really trying to reconnect people to the, to the farmers and the communities that are growing the, their food and fibre? It's funny you say that because uh, I was just reading... Um... Uh, well, I've been tidying up my uh, uh, study during this uh, pandemic and uh, I was reading something I think from back in uh, the early 2000s uh, and the president at the time was saying that uh, he was pleased to see that agriculture would be returning to the Melbourne show and uh, it's, a, it's a constant thing really uh, as we go along this journey that the criticism that we're getting away from agriculture is uh, is made fairly regularly, and yet when you look at it, um, there's plenty of agriculture there in so many ways. It's just different. We've, the thing is that we are the Royal Agricultural Society of Victoria, so our basis for being is agriculture. We've got to do what we can in that space. And what we've got to do is try and keep up to date with uh, new methods of how people are um, breeding stock, how they're growing uh, um, crops, uh, pastures, uh, what's happening with water. Uh, all of that's important and there are modern ways of dealing with these various things. And we have to, and what we did do well in the past was bring these modern ways of dealing with these matters to the attention of not only the country people who attended the show, but also the um, people from the city. And uh, we need to keep doing that uh, and improving it and making sure that we have uh, all the, the areas covered. And that's where uh, the members of those committees that I mentioned earlier, whether it's the cattle committee, the dairy committee, the horse committee, have got to have their eyes open 
and their ears open, listening to what's going on in the community and how things are being done. And where there are new practices or uh, ways of doing things, they need to bring that to the attention of the RAS, who might already be aware of it, but that doesn't matter. You know, better being told something five times than not knowing it at all. So uh, bring it to the attention of the RAS and then we can do something about it to ensure that we have some display or some interactive um, setup that uh, people can learn about these things and uh, ensure that we're at the forefront of what's happening in the rural community. Yeah, definitely. And I think that's where having the involvement with young people as well, where I won't say naiveness, I'll say that in energy and enthusiasm that young people bring to the table and you partner this with wise heads and, and knowledge that is garnered over generations. Like, it's an incredible thing, isn't it? that you have this mix of people where you might have an 18 or 19 year old on the committee sitting there with their grandfather or grandmother who could be 70 odd and it's just ideas flowing, but it's all around the same feeling of agriculture. Well, the thing that immediately comes to mind as you say that is that uh, if I've got a problem with my uh, television and trying to get Netflix on it, I say, now, look, is there a seven-year-old around or something, somebody who can solve this problem quickly for me? And it's a bit like that, that young people, I don't know that naive is the word. I think young people or younger people are pretty bright and alert and well-educated for the most part these days. And they see things from a different perspective. And that's what's good. And... I, I think that for the most part, what I've tried to do during my life and uh, latterly is that when a young person's got an idea uh, about something, I'm not about to say, oh, we tried that 10 years ago and it didn't work. I, you know, say, well, you know, we found there was a problem or two, but maybe you've got a different angle on it and, you know, it might be good to pursue it. So, you know, see how you go and, uh, and go for it. Um, we've got to try different things and we've got to encourage all ages, but particularly younger people. And, uh, I mean, everybody says how everyone's so busy, um, but then the old adage, you know, you want something done, give it, a, give it to a busy person and it'll be done properly, uh, still applies. Mm -hmm. So um, I think we want to uh, get all ages involved and the important thing is with ag societies, that they have got to encourage younger people by letting them get on and do the job, uh, not uh, stopping them. And I think I've found, you know, in different situations with ag societies over the years that where, and other organisations, that where the young, younger aren't encouraged, well, they go off and do something else. I mean, and, and I think that's maybe one of the things with your age and others these days is that, you know, you're, you've got plenty of things you can be doing. Uh, if you're not getting encouraged or being given the opportunity to do something, we'll go off and do something else. So far better that these people who are older saying, oh, you know, we haven't got a young people involved. Um, step aside, let the young people be involved and let them get on and do it. They'll make mistakes. We all make mistakes. The person who never made a mistake never did anything. So mm. give them an opportunity to run with it. Give them, uh, and if that happens, more, like, more than likely, they'll stay involved and assist, whether it's a local ag society, a local committee, 
or the royal itself uh, to uh, to move ahead. And uh, I think we need to be you know very conscious of that. Yeah, absolutely. And so I've got a question for you as you you're talking about these things, but just the tenure of involvement. What is it that still keeps you getting out of bed every day and staying involved in these things? A very good question. Very good question. I think it gets back to what we were talking about earlier, that, uh, you know, it was in the blood um, from the moment I was born, I suppose. And uh, and my involvement's been more on the organising side. I have competed at different things, but more on the organising side with these ag societies, with the Pakenham Ag Society, uh, where I was the arena director for many years and president uh, for what was two years there. And likewise, I came up to Seymour and found no one was running the horse section and said, well, could I help? Um, and uh, they said, could you? <laughs> <laughs> so then uh, took on that and then, um, you know, became the president there. Um, I don't know. It's, uh, it, it, it's, I think it just, you, I mean, you meet some delightful people. Um, that's good. You will meet, also meet a few others. But for the most part, you uh, the people who are in the show world um, and uh, and rural people themselves, as you'd be well aware, uh, are the salt of the earth. And uh, it, it's good, you know, meeting with them, mixing with them, talking with them, and then organising events. And that just continues on. Uh, and, and I think with the... Uh, the Royal Agricultural Society. I've sort of done many different things with them over the years. Uh, uh, since, uh, well, stewarding to start off with, but then on the council since 1991 and on the board since 2009. And there's so many different aspects to the Royal Agricultural Society of Victoria. And we deal with so many different matters that it's, there's always something of interest. And I suppose it's just uh, it continues to be an interest for me to see how we can improve things, how we can uh, get more people involved uh, and how we can ensure that uh, we're the very best we can be. Yeah. And as you're touching on improving things and also you mentioned before that there was no grand parade ring or main arena anymore. What is the current conversations that are happening as part of the Royal Ag Society of Victoria? Um, the, uh, we've sent a note out to uh, all our members and uh, many other stakeholders as well, uh, inviting them to contribute ideas for a master plan. And this came about as a result of the last uh, Melbourne show in 2019, discussions with the Premier and the Treasurer uh, about you know, it was time to look at what the next step, if you like, for the showgrounds. We had the redevelopment uh, a number of years ago, and that's worked well in many ways, but uh, <clears throat> it's now time to take the next step. And the government, very kindly, uh, said, uh, yes, well, we're happy to contribute towards that. So they've made a, a contribution of one and a half million to assist with the development of that master plan. And as uh, time goes on, facilities we need are facilities not just for the show, which is you know, one part of the year, but for the rest of the year to ensure that we get the best use of the showgrounds, uh, that we maximise our uh, income from it, 
and uh, the use of it. So uh, we're looking to get input from people uh, about how they see us moving ahead. Uh, and one of those things is that I think we basically all agreed on is that uh, you need a main arena. <laughs> 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 that um, it was a nice idea to uh, get rid of it and put a small, uh, you know, area with grass on it uh, to do the events that would normally have taken place in the main arena. But you do need a main arena at a royal show. And we're the only royal show uh, in this country that doesn't have a main arena. So uh, what we've got to do is we've got to get that main arena used. So we've got to justify uh, being able to have it by making it get used. And that means looking at all sorts of things, whether it's harness racing, whether it's uh, football, whether it's uh, soccer or rugby or other activities that could use it during the course of the year because we need to get maximum use of the ground. So, and then in regard to other parts of the showgrounds, uh, there were some of those, what you'd call temporary buildings like the Grand Pavilion, which <clears throat> marvellous and a great setup when we built it all those years ago, but now it's sort of a bit past its use by date and it's not versatile enough to do what's required. And we need better uh, insulation, we need better air conditioning and, uh, and climate control. And, uh, and that area needs to be looked at. And we need to look at access to uh, Epsom Road, how we do that in the best way. And also we want to work closely with the Victorian Racing Club, who are our next door neighbour, uh, so that we can you know, get some economies of scale between the two of us and uh, get a closer working relationship so we can help them, they can help us. Uh, and we can use each other's facilities a bit more than we have in the past. Mm. Things are all being looked at and we've got uh, some great people uh, and organisations investigating all of this and we're hopeful that the outcome of it will be something that's affordable uh, with probably the assistance of the government uh, and uh, that can uh, ensure that the Royal Melbourne Showgrounds uh, continues on into the future as a top-class facility for just about all types of events. And uh, that's the way we see it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's it's held such prestige over the years and serves such a purpose. And this, the role of the show is so important in connecting both the country and the city. And so, I think for for you, on a personal level, is there, given that we are celebrating in a different way, we're celebrating the show online this year. But is there something that, in particular, you're going to miss? not being there in person this year? Well, it's sort of just sort of part of my DNA almost, I suppose, as you were alluding to earlier, why am I still involved? Um, that come September, it's showtime. And uh, the people that you meet, uh, you catch up with people, some of whom you don't see during the year until you get to the show, uh, seeing the competitions and so on, hopefully running smoothly and that uh, any improvements that have been made as a result of uh, exhibitors or competitors or members uh, drawing our attention to them, that, uh, you know, you will uh, see those being carried out and people getting satisfaction from it. Um, the one thing I won't miss is the, uh, the, weather, the weather that you're never quite sure what it's going to be. Um, 
But I suppose the thing I haven't mentioned, and uh, this would be an appropriate time to do it, is of course the Gary Owen uh, competition. And uh, that's been going since 1934. Uh, and it's the top equestrian event for female riders. And my father was very involved with that. And he went into the Gary Owen Hall of Fame, which we started uh, a number of years ago, putting in uh, horse, rider, and exceptional service uh, person. And I've been involved with it since I think about 1983. And a great competition uh, that gets a lot of interest from not only the horse people, but also from the media. In fact, over the years, it would be the event that has got more television coverage than any other event at the showgrounds during the Royal Melbourne Show. Uh, and there's some great people involved with that over the years. I mean, I was just talking on the phone the other day to Kath Metherill. Now, she won it in 1947 and 1949. Now, Ollie, just imagine that. 1947, 1949. Now, I certainly wasn't around then. Uh, but, uh, uh, you know, and she's a remarkable woman. And uh, she always plays it down a bit and says she enjoyed the musical chairs more or enjoyed jumping more or whatever. But uh, a great event uh, for her to win. And others have won it numerous times. So uh, Vicky Laurie is the person who's won it the most times. And Helen Hegney, who's a Victorian. Uh, has won it many times and they keep their involvement and interest in it and more than likely have either family who've uh, followed in their footsteps or friends who they've assisted and that event is uh, yeah, the most prestigious force event for uh, uh, female riders in Australia. I'll miss that particularly this year. Well Jason thank you so much for taking the time to chat today and share that decades and generations of importance, but also of stories of um, the Royal Melbourne show. It's been fantastic chatting with you. Thank you very much for the opportunity, Ollie. And uh, yes, it's been a good opportunity to think about it all a bit and uh, put it into words, um, what I do feel about it. So uh, thank you. Well, I hope you enjoyed this chat with Jason, understanding a bit more about his story, but also the rich history of the Royal Melbourne show and the importance it holds to not only agriculture today, but the history of agriculture in Victoria. This was the first part of a six-part series as we celebrate the Royal Melbourne Show Online. You can tune in on Monday morning as we sit down and chat with Doug and Lee Depler. The story of how these two met is incredibly special. And as they reach the milestone of 50 years of breeding Suffolk sheep, it would have also been their 48th consecutive year of showing at the Royal Melbourne Show. Unfortunately, couldn't be this year, but it's awesome to have them on the podcast and celebrate it anyway. Look forward to seeing you on Monday.